CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Celebrate the Chicago Reader. Join us to see the Reader come to life at our second annual On Gala, Wednesday, October 18th at the stunning Epiphany Center for the Arts. We'll have Reader-approved entertainment, including Grammy Award-winning Peter Cottontail and local rockers, The Trenchies, DJs, live art, and other performances. More details are at chicagoreader.com slash ongala. That's chicagoreader.com slash ongala. Your Ben Jarofsky show for this Friday, October 6th starts now. On today's show, it's Oh What a Week, so Ben covers some of the top stories of the week with a very special guest. This week, he welcomes investigative journalist Angela Caputo. The Ben Jarofsky Show is a presentation of the Chicago Reader. ChicagoReader.com for everything there is to know in the city of Chicago. You want to know where to go, what to do, what to eat, what to drink. You want to know what's going on in politics in the city of Chicago? Just head to ChicagoReader.com. It's all right there for you. One-stop shopping, as they say. And if you want more Ben Jarofsky, just head to ChicagoReader.com forward slash Jarofsky. That's J-O-R-A-V is in victory, S-K-Y. Hello again, everybody. Ben Jarofsky here. We're calling this Bear Down Chicago Bears Friday. And here's why. Actually, it's over a week, as you all know. Uh, and Angela Caputo, a legendary Chicago journalist, is uh, patiently waiting to come on board to talk about some pressing issues of the day. But um, before we do that, I'm, just indulge me with this, ladies and gentlemen, please. Uh, this is, yes, a uh, political podcast by and large. You know I like to uh, deviate from time to time and indulge myself uh, in my love, my obsession with sports. Yes, I have tremendous, deep love for sports, particularly, well, everybody, the Bulls are number one, uh, but number two are the Chicago Bears. Why I love the Chicago Bears, I really don't know. Uh, I probably could spend a lot of time uh, in psychoanalysis talking about it, but the fact is I do love the Chicago Bulls. Uh, my family moved to Evanston in 1966. Uh, I was 10 years old. I said, I love the Bears. Uh, and there were two bears at that time that I loved the most. Gail Sayers, Dick Buckus. Gail Sayers died a few years back. He was a running back. I urge everybody to just check him out, his highlights uh, on YouTube. He was perhaps the most exciting, sensational runner that I can I've ever seen. Uh, the way he could just like go from left to right instantly on a dime, stop on a dime, pivot. Uh, Dick Buckus was this the ferocious middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears who tackled people really hard and played with a great passion and ferocity. Uh, and I loved them both. I probably love Gail Sayers the most, but Dick Buckus was right behind him. And then, of course, Walter Payton came. So those are my all-time three favorite Bears, Payton, Sayers, Buckus. Dick Buckus died yesterday at age 80. And I can't believe how emotional I was. Man, I'm getting old, man. I'm getting soft. Dick Buckus would be laughing at me because he was tough and I was soft. 
I was just really upset about that. For I guess it's just passing time. The older you get, the more uh, uh, you just get nostalgic and you think about uh, the early days. Uh, but um, I was reading the tributes to Dick Buckus, and uh, what it, I learned was that, uh, and I'm putting this out of my mind, the teams that Dick Buckus played for, those Chicago Bear teams, were awful by and large. I can't believe I put this out of my mind. These are the teams I was rooting for. One team was 1-13. and I do remember that. It was 1969. And uh, overall, he lost way more games than he won. So I'd be watching these games at an early age and <laughs> absorbing one loss after another, passionately cheering on the handful of victories that we got turning one victory into equivalent of five losses uh, and wondering, daydreaming, what it would be like to have a winning team to root for. Uh, and uh, this fast forward to last night's game where the Bears were playing Washington. Kevin Blackstone, you're going to be listening to this. I know my old friend Kevin Blackstone uh, is a diehard Washington football fan. Uh, and so the Bears are playing Washington, and they were favored to lose. The Bears are absolutely dreadful. They're, this Bears team is arguably worse than the 1-13 Bears team that Dick Buck has played on. Uh, and I said, you cannot lose on the day uh, that the great, the legendary Dick Butkus has left this earth. You cannot lose, Bears. You have to win one for Butkus. And they were victorious last night. I was. <laughs> yeah, I was singing the Bears theme song. I was jumping up and down. My wife thought I was crazy. Bears were victorious, and they did it for Dick Butkus. They did. By the way, when Walter Payton died, I remember they beat the Packers right after it was either the day he died or the day after he died or very shortly after he died. They beat the Green Bay Packers. Stirring, like I said, one one Bear victory is the equivalent of five Bear losses. <laughs> That's how desperate we are. By the way, and the Bears, I've, 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 I've just I've realized something about myself. Living with the Bears, being a Bears fan, has totally affected my approach to journalism. Angela Caputo, I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. Has totally affected my approach to journalism, to Chicago, to covering Chicago politics. It's like Bear fans are weak. We have like six days in between games to stew over how the Bears lost and rail and rant and, and curse them out. And to a large degree, that's how so many of us cover Chicago politics. We rant and rail at our politicians. How could you sell the parking meters? That is the dumbest. And I, and I, and I kind of realized that being just this passionate sports fan, I cannot, I can't cover up. It's who I am. It's just, part of my existence uh, and being dedicated to these mediocre to bad Chicago sports teams. Cause something you need to know, the bears are not alone throughout my history as a Chicago sports fan. Almost always I'm rooting for a lot today. This, this year's Chicago white Sox, the baseball team, terrible. My beloved Chicago bulls, mediocre. <laughs> The Bears, awful. Cubs, I'm not a huge Cub fan these days, but they had a monumental collapse in September. That was is almost funny if you just look at it from afar. 
So uh, we dedicate ourselves to losing teams, and then we get angry at the teams, as opposed to getting angry at ourselves for dedicating ourselves to losing teams. And then when we cover politicians, we get angry at the politicians for doing stupid things. Instead, Chicago, this is, I'm speaking to you, Chicago, instead of getting, getting angry at yourself for having voted for those politicians, term after term after term. So in your own way, Chicago, you epitomize, politically speaking, my love for the Bears. You continue to do something even though you know you're dedicating yourself to disappointment. Anyway, may you rest in peace, Dick Butkus. You were a tremendous, tremendous football player. It was a joy to watch you. And you're from Chicago, CBS, proud graduate of CBS. Grew up in Roseland on the far south side of Chicago. Went to the University of Illinois. Uh, Dick Butkus, one of my childhood heroes, passes at age 80. All right, without further ado, I'm going to bring on the great Angela Caputo. No, she's not a great football player, and no, she did not go to CBS, but in her own way, um, she's a star in the field of journalism. Angela, welcome to the show. Thanks, and I'm like embarrassed, but thank you. You're embarrassed that I compared you to Dick Butkus? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> uh, now, let's be honest with me right now. Do not duck, dodge, uh, or avoid the question. Until I began my uh, tribute, my monologue, my opening statement. Had you ever heard of Dick Buckus? Of course. You want to hear something funny, Ben, about Dick Buckus? Last night they were um, on the, you know, on NPR talking about his death, and they said he died in his Malibu home. I correct up. <laughs> that, that is so right. That is something else that I love about Dick Buckus. And here's the thing that Chicagoans like can't quite deal with about Dick Butkus. I'm glad you said that, Angela. Dick Butkus left Chicago. I'm going to give you a little history. It's real brief. Dick Butkus uh, destroyed his body or really hurt his body playing football, particularly his knees. Uh, and the Bears would not – God, they are so cheap. They would not pay him his the, the remainder of his contract – after he destroyed his knees and couldn't play anymore. So he sued him. He took him to court. He had to take the Bears to court to force them to do what they should have done anyway. The man destroyed his knees playing for the Chicago Bears, and they wouldn't pay him, Angela. And so but he left Chicago. He moved to Malibu. I love Malibu. In, uh, oh, my God. I love the beaches of Malibu. And um, I think Angela knows that. And he became a movie star. He, I think he's did like 70 or 80 different um, roles of various roles, uh, various movies. So he would come back to Chicago from time to time, Angela, uh, you know, to make appearances for maybe promotional purposes, whatever. But he's like, I'm living in Cali and Southern Cali on the ocean, Malibu with like, Jay-Z and Beyonce and whoever else lives in Malibu, Bob Dylan, Joni Mitchell. So, yeah, I um, I love Dick Buckfuss uh, for going to Malibu. All right, you passed the Dick Buckfuss test. You had heard of him. Had you heard of him before that NPR story, Angela? Of course. Oh, okay. come on. Okay. <laughs> All right, Angela. Um, oh, some good we talk about this as the week there was i think uh one of the um i'm speaking from my heart uh one of the great things that happened this week was sort of the launching of the investigative race project 
and uh, you, uh, my dear friend Kevin Blackstone, Laura Washington, the list goes on and on, Jimmy Wysela, uh had a big role in that. So why don't you take a moment to tell folks exactly what the Investigative Race Project is, and then we'll get into uh, its first uh, venture. But go ahead, take it from there. Yeah. Uh, the investigative project on race and equity, uh, it really, it it just grew organically out of a group of us uh, veteran journalists who we all came up learning the same uh, tradition of investigative reporting. We worked at a publication called the Chicago Reporter. And um, at one point, the reporter was um, on hiatus and it, we we rallied together around it because, you know, this was something that meant so much to us. There were people, all of us, you know, going back five decades, um, we some of us didn't even know each other until we got together. And then we just stuck together. Uh, ben, we started meeting on Saturdays. We met every Saturday for more than a year. Um, and three years later, here we are, we started a nonprofit organization and and really the intent of it is to carry for this legacy um, of doing um, dispassionate, you know, deeply reported investigative journalism around issues of racial equity. So looking, uh, using investigative reporting techniques to look at systems and how they affect people who interact with them through a, a lens on race. But, you know, beyond that, beyond doing the reporting and, you know, even this, our first project that we just launched, like, the back end of it, what we did on the backside was as important as what the public sees in the product, because we formed this organization and we created a training program, um, an apprenticeship program. And uh, the idea is, you know, to pass on these skills project by project where you're connected with veteran reporters um, who, you know, help to frame the story. It's an opportunity for uh, younger journalists, emerging journalists to try their hand at investigative reporting and be coached along the way on how to use data, you know, how to use PACER. We went to the courthouse and pulled records, you know, really just foundational skills in, in journalism, not just in investigative reporting. And there just aren't a lot of opportunities for that, that kind of mentorship. And so we're, we're creating it. We're like building a table and we're trying to pull up more and more chairs. Uh, yeah. Uh, let's break that down a little bit. Um, the notion of dispassionate journalism uh, as distinguished from uh, just the, uh, what I began with, ranting and railing and passion. Uh, I, the, the, um, the Chicago Reporter was founded uh, in the, the early 1970s by a man named John McDermott. Uh, working in conjunction with a woman named Lillian Calhoun. Uh, McDermott in particular had his roots in the civil rights movement. He actually did march with Dr. King. A lot of people say that. Uh, so I always felt that even though uh, the reporter preached this notion of being dispassionate uh, and concentrating on just the facts, if you will, putting them out in such a way that people uh, have to, lot, that reasonable people have to reach the same conclusion about something. It was a great passion about righting the wrongs of inequity and racism that drove uh, so much of the reporter research. So it may seem like a contradiction, Angela. I don't see it. I personally don't think of it as a contradiction. Um, but I believe there's great compassion 
that drives the mission, if you will, of the reporters who came up in this system and who are now carrying it on. Your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, I've worked in journalism for 20 years now, and I've never had an experience like it. And I wouldn't have had the career that I had after the reporter, but not for that that experience there. So, you know, we're not the reporter. The Chicago Reporter exists. Um, we've moved on. We have our, an organization called the Investigative Project um, on race and equity. Uh, but what ties us together is that, you know, we all had that same foundational experience and that we're trying to recreate it for other journalists. Well, talk about your motivations. So uh, my motivations, like personally about doing the work? Yeah, when you when you got started and what drove you uh, in your journalism career? Oh my gosh, Ben, like I became a journalist because of the Chicago Reporter. I was working at a nonprofit on the far north side, Centro Romero, it's a settlement house organization. And um, one of my colleagues who ran a, the vi domestic violence program was interviewed by this guy, Rui Kinea, uh, a, a journalist. And I, I didn't even know anything like this existed, to be honest. Like, that's how dumb I am. Um, like, investigative reporter, that's a job. That's a career. Wow. And writing stories about issues, you know, that are important to the people that I was working with at the time, um, you know, it just, I was really inspired by it. I took a class, I went and took a class at Columbia College, just like a journalism 101 and a copy editing class to see if I would like journalism. It was just a lark. And um, I loved it. You know, I loved everything about it. And my goal was to try to get back to the Chicago Reporter. I mean, it inspired me to be a journalist. And, um, you know, I was an intern and then I went and I worked at the Daily Southtown and um, <clears throat> came back. I actually did come back to the reporter and, you know, it really changed um, the trajectory of my career. I think um, at the time that I got the job at the reporter, I was offered and I can't remember the the job at the Tribune where it's like two years. You're like a resident, I think is what it's called. I was offered that and I was offered the reporter job at the same time. And, uh, you know, coming out of the Daily Southtown and I chose the reporter and then I ended up going to work at the Tribune on the investigations team. So I could have gone as a junior reporter and chased ambulances and, you know, did beat reporting. But I went to the reporter and I learned investigative reporting. And, you know, when I was there, it wasn't like the, there was this magical organization that taught me these skills. It was the people that were there together. It was the collaboration. We learned from each other. So that's why, you know, the work that we're doing now um, is such an extension of that community that we built there. <clears throat> like at The Reporter, we would have uh, data Fridays. You know, every Friday, everybody just got in a room and like worked on data. We worked through things. And that's how we learned. That's how we became data journalists. And I remember Kimbrielle Kelly, Maria Inez Zamudio, we, um, you know, it's our tradition that we would go to IRE and NICAR conferences and we would like scrape together money, uh, you know, credit card points, whatever we could. One year we went, the three of us, uh, to an IRE conference for like $832 because we were, you know, broke. Um, but it was that commitment, you know, and that community that we could figure out a way to do it together. And then whatever we learned, we taught each other. And, you know, it was a place where journalists can be really competitive, but we were 
on a mission. You know, it was such a mission-driven organization and we supported each other. And so it, it was it was not about the ego. It was about the work and working together. And um, yeah, it made me strong, you know, and it, it connected me with people who are very important to me still, you know, like more than a decade later. And um, so it's like that community that we're tapping into. That's what we're all about. We're taking, I mean, there are a lot of us with all these feels and experiences, and that's who we are. That's who the investigative project is, where all of the people um, who had that experience together, coming together and, and figuring out how to pay it forward. Now, you mentioned a, a distinction between investigative journalism and just uh, general assignment reporting or beat uh, reporting. Uh, and uh, I think maybe my listeners might be wondering, well, shouldn't all reporting be at some point or another investigative? I mean, you shouldn't take at face value uh, what the mayor of Chicago says or what an alderman says or what, uh, if you're a sports reporter, what the general manager of the Chicago Bears say. So in your mind, what's the distinction between uh, investigative reporting uh, and the rest of journalism? Yeah, I, I agree that like investigative reporting is part of all journalism, but there's more range when you're like a beat reporter, for example, you might do a, a feature or profile on a leader in a space, you might show a program that's working, you know, or innovative in some way, and then you might also do an investigation into the system that you cover. Whereas investigative reporters, we tend to work on these very long term, like, you know, deeply reported projects that um you know, can take a month, two months, a year. Uh, so that that's the difference. And that's all we do. So we don't have, which, you know, I kind of miss to tell you the truth, having a little bit of balance, you know, a variety, writing different kinds of stories. And um, yeah, we can have a whole other conversation about my thoughts on investigative journalism and it being siloed. I think that can also be a little, you know, counterproductive maybe. Wait, what do you mean by that? Investigative journalism being siloed? Well, you know, when when people don't see a solution, you know, or when you're, you know, you have to have both sides of it, right? And that's what the news is. And so, like, when you're working at a publication, like, say, at the Chicago Tribune, where I worked, you know, we had that variety. I was an investigative reporter, and we had, you know, um, so we would, like, our cops reporter, for example, you know, I had an idea for a story and for a cops reporter, it's like it's a delicate balance, right? Because you're trying to keep sources and it's sometimes you can't be investigative all the time. So you can bring the investigative reporter in to work on that project with you. But like, I don't know, Ben, you know, like what I think is the future in investigative journalism or like one thing that's being added to it that I really like and I think it needs and not that is solutions uh, journalism and bringing that like solutions angle to it to show that here's a problem, but here's an example of how it works. So I think like where we're at now, what concerns me is that everyone thinks everything is a dumpster fire and it's not. There are a lot of things that are actually working well, but there are things that could be working better, you know? And so we need to have both of those in the frame or else people can't see anything. And I, I think that's what I'm getting at. All right, uh, so let's bring it uh, down to what, uh, with an example, the, this, the first uh, major investigation uh, by um, the investigative project, um, and I'm just reading the headline, pretty much sums up the story. 
uh, black drivers being stopped in record numbers. Uh, so why don't you uh, explain to listeners exactly what uh, you discovered and this story, which ran on the front page of the Chicago Sun-Times and uh, was featured on WBEZ. Shout out to WBEZ uh, and the Chicago Sun-Times. Go ahead. Yeah, so, I mean, we weren't looking exclusively at Black drivers. We went into this project. It was the 20th anniversary of this landmark legislation that then State Senator Barack Obama ushered through the legislature. And so here we are 20 years later. We have all of this data. We've seen these reports come out year after year, and they all they kind of say the same thing year after year, like no conclusive you know, evidence of profiling, but there are, you know, disproportionate stops. And so um, Matt Kiefer at WBEZ, um, who is also a mentor to me over the years and friend and a collaborator, and also, um, you know, a founding member of the investigative project and um, a former, he worked at the Chicago Reporter at one time in the past. Uh, But Matt had this idea, like when, I think he was a community college student, he was like a 19 year old kid um, when this legislation passed and he started collecting the data. And um, he's always wanted to do this big project. And so on this 20th anniversary, um, we put all all of the years together, 42 and a half million records. And for the first time looked over time at traffic stops, not just in Chicago, but across the entire state. <clears throat> and we looked for patterns. We looked at how things had changed. And that's where we, you know, discovered like what just smacked us right in the face was, wow, things are like for black drivers, it's getting worse. You know, the uh, black drivers are being stopped more than before, more than ever before on record since we began collecting this data. But also, you know, what we found in the in the data is that's really interesting about black drivers. And I think really important is that. Black drivers are now stopped more for non-moving violations than moving violations. So that's like the broken taillight, that's the fuzzy dice hanging from the rearview mirror, that's the car parked, you know, illegally in the standing zone. More than half of all of the encounters statewide with black drivers are for non-moving violations. That's not the case for white drivers. White drivers are primarily for moving violations. What we also found with black drivers that is important when you connect all of these together, especially, is that um, there's been a fivefold increase in the number of black drivers who were stopped on non-moving, so stopped for one of these low level, not speeding offenses, and um, let off with a warning. So you've got an, an increase in black drivers being stopped for these lowest level violations, and then a fivefold increase in the number who got off with a warning. So what, legal experts tell us and you know not everyone agrees because the state you know and cpd they still maintain that there is not racial profiling occurring but you know when we look at all the data together we could see for black drivers you know things have changed and that was our story that was the story that we that we found in this and you know what these legal experts are saying to us sorry to close that thread is that these are these deserve more scrutiny because they could be pretextual stops. Like police don't really have a good reason to stop drivers, <clears throat> but they want to make contact with them. And so they'll stop them and run their name, you know, through the system and let them go if if there's nothing comes up. So if you see our story, which is posted on our website, WBEC, 
Um, there's a great example of one of the drivers who's featured in the story, James Etienne. He had 24 traffic stops. So we went to the courthouse and this is like with an apprentice, you know, we built a little like data set on this guy's interactions. And we wanted to background him because we wanted to know everything about him because that's what we do as journalists. When we're using a source, we need to understand who they are. And uh, we made a spreadsheet. Everything in that court system is traffic related. Like he shows up, if you pull his name in the court system, you see like a long list, but then we looked at him and we were like, wow, 24 traffic encounters. And this is, you know, going back to 2007 when he was like a very young man. So this is throughout his adult life. And um, he stopped in this incident and there's body cam footage that you can see on the story where he's um, in, on Lower Wacker by Michigan. He's sitting in a black Mercedes in a, a loading zone. Um, he just got, he's wait, he's just got off of work. He delivers food for a Thai restaurant, uh, Starves I Am, right by where he used to work, so that he works there. So he was in the car, you know, waiting on his phone, had like a sign in the window, like work, you know, employee of, because he's a driver. And um, the police came up to his car, body cam footage of it, and they, you know, they stop him and he's like, what am I doing wrong? And they're looking in the car and they take his name, his license. They go back to the car and like, this is all over within less than two minutes. They run his name through the system and we can hear on the body cam, they're saying, one cop says he's all clear. The other cop says, remember the last time you said that? The two walk back to the car and the officer gives James's license back and says, sorry, man, there's been three shootings in the area. It's nothing personal. So, I mean, just think about it. If it's a white man in his mid-30s sitting in a Mercedes in River North at the side of the road, would a cop say, like, sorry, man, we had to stop you because there's been a lot of shootings in the area? And that's just like the experience that this that James has over and over. And that's the story we wanted to tell with this, or that's the story that presented itself, we felt was the most important story when we looked at the data or the most prevalent story is like all of these small, minor, low-level stops, like over and over. We hear about, you know, it, like the worst case scenario and like we should, like that's important, you know, the Sandra Blands and the Philando Castillos, you know, those traffic stops that, you know, where someone ends up dead. But really, it's like this slow drip. And a colleague that I worked with on this project, he had a really good analogy about this. Uh, when we were talking about this yesterday, he said, it's kind of like if you're at work, and you get pulled into HR all the time. And they're like, Oh, no, it's good. You know, you didn't do anything wrong. But you keep getting pulled into HR, it just doesn't feel good. It feels like, you know, it doesn't feel good. It feels like you're in trouble, even if you're not. And it's like, that's the that's the story that the data told us is like that there is this high volume system of people who are getting off with a warning, you know, so they're being stopped. And then in this instance with James, we see it's like, there's a connection between his race and violence, even though he is like, there's nothing in the Cook County court record except for traffic offenses, like traffic stops. So I don't know. I mean, that's a lot there. Sorry, I just like dumped it all out. But like, that's, that's the story. No, that's a great riff. Um, I took notes. Let's back up a little bit. Pretextual. Explain a little bit what you mean by I think I know what you mean. Uh, but I want I would love to hear you explain like a pre 
textual stop as opposed to like a legitimate stop like uh our radar shows you're going 80 miles an hour in a 40 mile hour that's a legitimate stop pretextual go yeah i mean it's basically do you have probable cause or not and what the lawyer was saying was that in a lot of these cases the traffic code is being used as the pretext for the stop because there's not probable cause otherwise And the intent of what James shows with that interaction was not about, probably not about him being parked in the wrong place or standing in a, you know, in a no parking zone. It was about running his name and there were shootings in the area and he's a black man sitting there, you know, just being. Wow, that's deep. Uh, There's also the possibility uh, that's just, we want to mess with you if you get what I'm saying, like a probable cause, uh, you know, know, like there's a shooting in the area. So we need a pretext to stop you. I don't know what they're going to discover, by the way, if they stop you, I guess what they'll see a bazooka in the back of the car. Yeah. They're looking for the gun. Uh, uh, And uh, was so nice to him, Ben. The cop was nice to him. Like the cops were like trying to make small talk. They were like, they weren't, being like rough on him you know and like that's part of the story that doesn't really get told it's just like these mundane like small interactions that don't feel mundane or small when you see them in totality right um but yeah the cop was like hey yeah you know i like your whatever and like making small talk and like i'm sorry man it's not personal you know it was like trying to be nice to him um but yeah. that's like the fear, the fear that, you know, that is right now in Chicago and across the state. Although I do want to say like that instance was in Chicago and Chicago's gotten a lot of uh, attention around traffic stops, more attention. And our look is different because we look beyond Chicago as well. We look, you know, over two decades, every community across Illinois, we've made this data, we put it together and we made it publicly accessible. So every community across the state can go and look and see what did traffic stops look like? Have police been compliant with turning in the data, um, looking at trends over decades? So so that's all available. Um, yeah, so we, we put it all out there and um, but what we saw was that, you know, in I can't remember the number. I hate repeating numbers, but I'm going to just say in most in most places, I think it was like three out of four, like that high in in, across the state um, jurisdictions, police jurisdictions stopped black drivers at a disproportionate rate. So, I mean, this is insidious. This is this is not a Chicago issue. This is happening in a majority of communities across the state. And we also found like a, a dozens of jurisdictions where more black drivers were stopped than black people live there yeah wait just so, just so i understand when you say three out of four three in, in any given jurisdiction uh let's say uh, billy bob county just made that up uh when you take a look at it three out of four uh police stops in a were black drivers is that what you're saying no. by three out of four no three out of four police departments across the state like in police, when you look at police agencies, because that's how the data is, like we can see the police department that made the stop, right? 
And so when we look across the state, we wanted to know, is this a Chicago issue? Like, is the number of stops that's happening in Chicago, we don't want that to wait, like what it looks like a across the rest of the state because Chicago is just big, right? And there are other small places. So then we looked at the data, we asked the question of the data, what do, um, what do disparities look like throughout the state? And so, yeah, this is like really in the, in the weeds, like the reporting, but we're looking at census data, um, 18 and over per town. We're looking at the number of stops and we're comparing the number of people stopped versus the number of people who live in the town, you know, and then looking the rate of stops, you know, the rate of the local population versus the rate of stops by that jurisdiction. And we found, yeah, in a majority across the state, um, police pull black drivers over at a higher rate than the local population of, of black people. So it, it's my point is that it, this isn't just a Chicago issue. This is statewide. This is in like pretty much all communities across Illinois. This issue. Yeah. And in, in the article, uh, you talk about Highland Park, which is a suburb uh, listeners who are out of town, uh, a relatively well-to-do suburb uh, north of Chicago. And how far is Highland Park north of Chicago? I want to say Maybe like 30 miles, 30 most. miles, okay. 30 miles. I don't know. I would guess it can't be more than uh, something like that. Uh, and um, it's on the on Lake Michigan. So it's a well-to-do town. I forget what the the ratio was, but it was alarming. Um, like, I think I'm doing this off the top of my head, which is always dangerous, Angela. Uh, but it was something like 14% of the stops were black motorists and only 2% of the people who live in the town uh, are black. I think. That's off the top of my head. Talk a little bit about what's going on in the north suburbs of Chicago. Yeah, I mean, again, we found that these these patterns hold in communities across the state and including the North Shore and the western suburbs, um, you know, and so Highland Park, I mean, why that was significant to the story is before this data was collected, Highland Park was under investigation um, and it was police uh, within the the police department who alleged that racial profiling was happening. And there were, you know, some pretty gross allegations, you know, about trying to keep uh, black people and Latino people out of downtown and, you know, out of parts of town. And um, as a result of that, there were, you know, that, that predated the, um, the law that President Obama helped, you know, to um, introduce in the state house. But that was kind of like a driving force for this legislation being passed at that time. There was some momentum, right? And that was an example. So, I mean, the issue with Highland Park, it goes back decades. But when we looked at the data, yeah, we still see the same disparities now that, you know, we saw at the beginning before. And, yeah. And this is me speaking, uh, not Angela. I want to make this very clear. Uh, this is where I say it's probable cause i think it's harassment uh because i'm thinking are in all these instances where there's a shooting in highland park or glencoe or wherever that they're responding to i mean you're pulling over at a higher rate uh black drivers i there was no it doesn't seem like there's any crime that they're investigating that could even remotely justify it like in the case of the incident you gave uh the example you gave in chicago the police were saying essentially we have no choice we're we're pulling over people that fit a certain 
uh, composite. Um, be that as it may, that's an explanation. Whereas in the other case, what are you guys pulling? There's no crime committed. Uh, that's my read of it. Your response. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, we don't know the particulars of what's happening in each case, you know, and we can't. But what we do know is that, you know, with the the drivers that we spoke with and looking at this data over like a very long time period that like these are patterns, right? These are patterns that exist in every community. And that's the level that we were looking at in this. But, um, you know, the same drivers pass through all of these towns. So, you know, like James, who I mentioned with the 24 traffic stops, you know, he's been stopped in Evanston and Rolling Meadows, Jeffrey Manor, um, you know, in the west suburbs and the north suburbs. He lives, he grew up in Evanston or he lives in Evanston. Um, he lived in, yeah. So, um, and then the other, uh, another person who we featured in the story, Richard Jackson, um, he's a veteran. He served 11 years in the Navy moved back to Chicago, and now he's a federal immigration official. And um, he's been stopped, you know, um, on the far north side, in the northern suburbs, in the western suburbs. So it it's one driver, like these the same drivers being stopped all over the region. It's, it's not even necessarily, it's like as Black people travel around the state, they're stopped in all of these different places. Um, it's not isolated to, you know, just that community, if that makes sense, you know, in the time period we're looking at, because we're looking at so many years. Yeah, no, I, uh, I remember this, uh, uh, kind of a, a cousin, uh, type article that, uh, the great McDumkey and I did years ago when uh, we were at, at the, uh, the reader, uh, I'm still there, mixed not, uh, but it was about, um, Marijuana arrest or cannabis, I call it reefer. It's my generation. Anyway, uh, the number of black people arrested for possession of marijuana was far greater than the number of white people arrested uh, for marijuana. Now, this is the difference between me uh, as an opinionated columnist, uh, podcaster, uh, and Angela as an investigative journalist um, for uh various venues that she's worked for i'm don't <laughs> I'm, I'm like oh yeah that's just harassment that's just freaking harassment of black people uh criminalizing them uh for doing something that white people do and I, that's like the drum i pound all the time uh but i understand it's different with uh when you're working in an investigative unit and you're working um uh for bez or uh Tribune is that you hold back on those judgment calls. Do you understand, Angela? Until you can really, really, really substantiate it, it's really hard to substantiate something like that. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, it's a difference between a columnist, a podcaster, an opinionated uh, person, uh, and a investigative journalist. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, totally. I mean, just to like piggyback off what, what you're saying, even about the cannabis, you know, arrests. Um, I did a piece when I was still at the, you know, years ago at the Chicago Reporter at the time. Um, and I looked at the misdemeanor courts and I found, I looked like over years and I looked at the disposition in those cases and I found eight out of 10 are thrown out. So it's really the same thing as traffic stops, you know, um, on the back end, 
except that, you know, the pro and for both the process and even traffic stops, you can end up in the misdemeanor court over. And so like the, not only for some people, it doesn't just stop at the stop, you know, like, or at the encounter, the interaction with police. Now you've got this citation. Now you have to go to court, you know, and spend a day in court. What if it gets continued? And then eight out of 10 just get thrown out? Like why? So that's what we do. We look at systems. Like why does this system, why do we have a system that's set up that dismisses eight out of 10 cases? And is the quality of the cases not good? What was the intent of the case in the first place? And and these are all the questions that we hope that our reporting like raises. Mm -hmm. So, and then columnists can run with it and, you know, have their own opinions. <clears throat> but yeah, that's what I mean by dispassionate. So like, obviously we're passionate about equity. Um, and as journalists, we feel like, we feel like we're reporting on the public, you know, and at the, you know, for a long time, I would say like, it, it's been frustrating for me that like, this is kind of seen as like an advocacy or a niche. It's not, it's like, this is the public and that's our job. Like we work for the citizens as journalists, and this is an issue that's important in the same way that we see stories about menopause, you know, in, in the news, or we read articles about, children in school. It's about our experiences. And this experience, uh, people haven't really dug into in that same way. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to do this deeply reported um, investigative journalism around about issues that affect individuals and communities of color. Uh, you mentioned that um, uh, the notion, the concept of uh, solution journalism. Uh, and uh, so what is the solution to the inequity that uh, your article or your investigation pointed out? Well, this one, you know, we're this journalism is a process of inquiry, right? So we did this huge project. We released, we freed 42 and a half million records to the public in a way that you can go and you can look at your own town, right? So that was part of the story. We looked at these patterns. We looked at why are, you know, who's being stopped? why. Um, so we got into that. We were talking about it. Um, but I think there's so much more reporting to be done off of this data and this project. And as far as solutions go, like I do think one story or like stories that would be interesting to tell from this and we're open sourcing it. So, you know, we're freeing the data for other journalists to use and we would love to work with other journalists and doing additional reporting on this topic. Um, but, you know, are there are there departments that have made real success, you know, and when we're looking at the data, you know, like at all of it together, right, we can see some trends here and there, but we don't know what they mean. Like, is the data complete, you know, do and, you know, and we've talked about that in our story, like, this is what we have, it is what we have. But once you start saying like, this is, you know, looking deeply at a success, you need to that takes some shoe leather reporting. And so I, I think that would be really interesting, like in communities where they've managed to reduce like the disparities, like how did they do it? And are there lessons there that can be learned in other places? So it's important to, you know, that we're looking at the system and we're looking at an issue and it's a problem for people, which is why we care. We're not saying, you know, 
we're saying it's a problem for people. People are telling us this is a problem. So we're looking at it. Um, but yeah, there could be a great solution in there in there to be told. So that's what I'm talking about is mm -hmm. like, we can expose problems, but we also have to look at, you know, just because a system isn't working well, like how do you fix the system or does it need to be blown up? Do you know what I mean? And maybe the system, like we there, if we can see how it works, maybe then we can adjust and make more of the system work. Yeah. Um, I don't, I have to think about that one. Like uh, what solutions, uh, well, here's a solution, you know, in, in Illinois, there's one, I mean, it's a small solution, but, um, and you know, it's in Virginia, lawmakers went even further, but you know, they started changing the, the code, the traffic code. And, you know, it's no longer, you, you can no longer use one of these non-moving violations as the primary reason for stopping someone. So you're like changing the, the code, right? Like the attorney told us that the traffic code is the pretext. So you're like removing that. So that's an example of a solution. So then uh, state rep um, LaShawn Ford, he uh, introduced a bill that became law earlier this year and it eliminated the ability to stop drivers for having fuzzy dice or a rosary hanging from the rear view mirror. And, you know, we don't have data on that yet because it's so new, but like, will that reduce some of these stops, you yeah. know, and, and that was the intent behind that was to like create a solution, maybe on some of these really low level stops, we can, um, we can reduce some of them because one, it could, and it could just pop off into something that is, um, you, you know, harm, like somebody's hurt, you know. Um, or, you know, like the other things we talked about, the consequences of having to go to court. James, you know, the guy who I was telling you about the story downtown um, in Chicago, he's had three cars impounded during these yeah. stops. And when he's younger, he's got like cars that aren't worth a lot of money. So he's like, it's not even worth it for me to take it, to get it out. It's like a cheap car, you know, for like what it's going to cost once I get it out of the impound lot, fees and fines and um, and the reason that he, yeah, so, you know, there's like, there's all kinds of consequences that, you know, to these like seemingly small interactions. Uh, I digress. These, no, no, you don't. Uh, it, uh, these seemingly small uh, actions uh, have a corrosive effect. And uh, they all, all, they're that outweigh the, one stop if you follow what i'm saying the man's been stopped so many countless times you know it's just it's a toxic impact in on our society that's how i view it uh and it's been existing it's been going on angela well forever but i only became aware of it when i you know moved to chicago and then in the, in the uh, early 80s it's still going on um great work uh very powerful story i urge everybody to check it out uh then watch watch it watch watch how she answers this question ladies and gentlemen so what's the next investigation uh that, that the project is will be conducting that we can look forward to watch this ladies and gentlemen go ahead angela yeah i mean of course ben i'm not going to tell you what our next investigation is come on but i will tell you what we are doing like like yeah. immediately now like our uh -huh. with the traffic stop so we got the information out right and we did the reporting with our team and our, um, you know, our apprentices that we worked with and we started our, our, we launched our organization. But now what we want to do is we're open sourcing this data 
and we want to work with uh, newsrooms and with journalists in other parts across the state who don't have access to training, you know, who don't necessarily get to go to IRE and those NICAR conferences that I told you about where we learned so much. We can bring a seminar on this topic and also the local data so more uh, communities can have coverage about what's happening with traffic stops in, in their own area and how accountable their police departments are. So that's a big part of what we do. Like we're doing the journalism, but like I said, the behind the scenes work is like just as important. We're building community, we're training, and we're developing capacity among journalists to um, do more investigative reporting and also to do more deeper reporting on racial equity. Fair enough. Uh, one of my favorite things to do whenever I have a journalist on is ask him or her what she's working on now. I think the master of avoiding this uh, brilliant seamlessly is Greg Pratt. Shout out Gregory Pratt, Chicago Tribune. Uh, love asking Gregory Pratt. And then watch. He'll have, oh, Ben, did I tell you about the story I did two weeks ago? Let me And then he launches it in two weeks. I go, man, you duck and dodge a question more than J.P. Pritzker does. Uh, anyway, uh, it's just like, yeah, but you know, I would say that for us, sometimes, like, sometimes we can talk about what we're working on because nobody else is gonna do it. I'm just so that's my attitude, I let the world know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, know, nobody else is right. gonna do this, Roger. Who else, who else, Angela Caputo, is gonna spend how many months documenting uh, traffic stops? Right, only someone who's like. <laughs> like a little weird but really passionate which is kind of the same thing you know what i'm saying little, little focused determined discipline it's so the notion that like you know what i mean the notion that uh someone at cranes oh my god they're working on this uh traffic stop story quick get greg hines working on it not gonna happen you see greg yeah. hines doing a deep dive and uh anyway sorry greg didn't mean to buy. so i'm just bragging a little bit about how we can like i mean what we do nobody else does like and Absolutely. that's why we're and that's why we're trying to like that's why we're like pushing forward with this because not only do we want to do the work but we want to teach other people so 20 years from now there is another angela that's on this podcast or another podcast you might be in malibu by then retired <laughs> if things um, go well angela that's where i will be and you will always be welcome to hang with me at uh Ma we'll go to will rogers beach uh and hang out and be just so cool in the sunshine uh listen to roy airs uh all right so i don't blame you for not telling me what the next project is in fact i applaud you for that uh greg pratt would be very proud uh, but do tell people how they can contact you uh, or uh, the other editors and uh, uh, with the project. So like maybe they have ideas for uh, stories you can work on. So why don't you just tell folks how they can get in touch with you? Yeah, um, reach out to me. I'm at the um, Investigative Project on Race and Equity. Um, you can find us on the internet and on social media, and you can email me at acaputo at raceandequityproject.org. Um, please, I mean, we're all about community and ideas and um, collaborating. And so, yeah, reach out. Like we're, we're here and, and we're eager not only to do what we wanna do, but also to listen to like what is needed and figure out ways that we can be of service, you know, to this work and our Very city good. and our community. 
Very good. Thank you very much, uh, Angela, for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Shout out to everybody uh, uh, on the project, Laura Washington. Mc. I don't want to leave any names out. These are people I know. Uh, uh, Jim Wysela. Hey, Humphreys. Yo. Hey, Humphreys. Uh, Woo. <laughs> Jonathan Briggs, Tom Clark, Sharon McGowan, uh, Susan Clark. Schultz. We got uh, Tom Broom. We had a... Wow. Going all the way back to the first, we have the first employee from the reporter with us. Yeah. Like we go all the way back to 19, the, this friendship, this community dates back to 1972. And let's give a shout out to Alden K. Lowry, uh, who's over at WBEZ. He's part of your um, project too. I didn't know there was a K there, Alden. I just saw that by looking at the masthead. So now from now on, you're not going to be Alden Lowry. You're going to be Alden K. Lowry. I've always uh, called him Alden MF. Lowry, but okay. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's some kind of inside thing. That's an old joke from the that's the old joke from the nineties. Uh <laughs> anyway, great job, great work. Thank you very much, Angela. Appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Ben. It was so fun. Uh, that's Angela Caputo. I also want to thank producer Chrissy, does an outstanding job. And I think that uh Angela and Alden K. Lowry and Greg Pratt will agree with me when I say, hey Chris. Great job. Give yourself a raise. Take it out of petty cash. Peace and love, everybody. And remember, you can always get caught up on previous Ben Jarofsky shows. If you missed any of those Benny J bonus episodes, they're all up there at chicagoreader.com. There's columns from Ben Jarofsky. There's a lot of cool stuff for you to check out this weekend, so enjoy it. Follow Ben Jarofsky on Instagram at Benny J Show and like and subscribe to the Ben Jarofsky Show on your favorite streaming and podcasting platforms. Please, people, I say this every week. I need my job. Have a great weekend, everybody.